Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Yeah, we got quite a program for you tonight. We're looking a little bit uh, more business orientated at last after all the craziness of the last week. In fact, if you think about uh, 18 months now since we first knew that COVID was going to be visiting us. Uh, so it really has been a backseat for business to a large degree. But tonight we're starting to get more focused. There's a, quite a bit of business news coming through tonight. We'll be talking with Stephen Nathan about that. And uh, then, of course, we have got our partners at the Financial Times in London who are talking about something that uh, my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts is going to be really interested in. Robin Hood, Justin, getting listed on the stock market in the United States next week. They're getting very excited about that. Uh, I, I guess it's going to give us a good line on what Purple Capital is worth here in South Africa, given that Easy Equities is similar to it. That's exactly my train of thought, Alec. Uh, Robin, Robin Hood going public. Uh... Sorry, finger trouble my side. <laughs> okay, you with me now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Alec, uh, that's exactly my train of thought. Robinham going public is going to be very interesting. Uh, I know there has been valuation done as them as an unlisted entity, and that comparison has been done between them and Easy Equities. And Easy Equities is seen as cheap relative to Robinhood. Robinhood do have a lot more subscribers, and they do have a lot more offerings as a trading platform, whereas Easy Equities is an investing platform. So there are differences between the two, but it'll be interesting to draw parallels once it goes public. Indeed, and they're talking, well, we'll hear from the FT guys in just a while, but uh, around about $35 billion, which is, if you think that Easy Equities here in South Africa is one and a half billion rand, uh, it's a massive multiple, but it could lift up uh, Easy Equities or the Purple Capital share here. Uh, We'll also be hearing today from the um, centerpiece of the rioting in KwaZulu-Natal Midlands, that's Peter Maritzburg. James Martin is a uh, works for the government there uh, in Peter Maritzburg. He looks after economic development, and he's got some incredible insights on how the taxi industry came to the rescue of the uh, the city, and why? Why the taxi? Why did the taxi drivers actually care enough to? retain or keep the status quo going and, uh, well, serve as a bulwark and a way of stopping the looting. Fascinating uh, discussion. And then after him, we'll be hearing from Moletsi Mbeki, uh, the political analyst and brother of former President Thabo Mbeki, who's got some different ideas. His idea is that the whole tribal Zulu um, thesis that is being given to us by people who are on the ground there, Gigi Alcock, uh, Jason McCormick, etc., is a lot of bunk. In fact, that it's being made up and it's being trotted out by the uh, Sora Maposa faction of the ANC to try and scare the whites, and then they use similar things to scare the blacks. It's a, it's 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 fascinating. And Molets, he's a really smart guy, so you've got to be listening to what he has to say. It's coming up a little later. Our Linda van Dolberg interviewed him. And then we talk to Miles van der Moerlen, and here's an unsung hero. I'll just leave it at that. He's the chief executive and founder of Seme, and they've been doing some quite incredible things. We'll be talking to that a little later in the program today. But first up, of course, we want to find out how the markets have been doing. Bride Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, Nadia Swat has got the news headlines, Nadia. So South African authorities arrested six people who allegedly instigated a week of rioting that claimed at least 215 lives and have charged them with inciting public violence. One of the six was released on bail, while the other five are in custody pending their bail hearings, acting minister in the presidency, Kumbuzo Nchaveni, told reporters in Pretoria. The minister declined to name them, saying she didn't want to jeopardize investigations. 
The unrest was triggered by former President Jacob Zuma's arrest on contempt of court charges. Hundreds of shops were looted and telecommunications towers and other infrastructure destroyed in the KZN and Gauteng provinces before thousands of soldiers were deployed to help police restore calm. While roads, rail links and ports have reopened, several areas are confronting shortages of food, medicines and fuel. President Cyril Ramaphosa and members of his administration have repeatedly said the attacks were planned and orchestrated and that those responsible were party to sedition and economic sabotage. It's unclear what the alleged instigators aim to achieve. Jailed former President Jacob Zuma has won a short-term legal victory, which scores him three weeks until his next appearance in his arms deal criminal trial. On Tuesday, Judge Pitkun ruled that Zuma's trial was adjourned to August 10th to adjudicate on the issues raised in a special plea. Zuma is the first accused in the criminal case in which he has been charged on various counts, including corruption, fraud, money laundering, tax evasion and racketeering. Kuhn has temporarily excused the representative of Zuma's co-accused, French arms company Thales, as the court addresses Zuma's shoehorn request to have the state prosecutor recused on allegations of bias and then seek acquittal altogether. The unrest has dealt a severe blow to investor confidence, which is a warning from the Durban Chamber of Commerce and Industry as it engages with several companies seeking to divest from the province and possibly the country. Mpume Langa, first vice president of the chamber, said major foreign companies such as Toyota, Defy, LG and Massmart are among those that have invested in the province. She said businesses in the province felt abandoned last week during the riots as the government's response proved to be too little too late for many business owners. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if Toyota do uh, leave South Africa. Mm. I somehow doubt it, given the uh, number of quantums that are being sold <laughs> to taxi operators. But uh, we're on to, uh, and it'd be interesting, Justin, to see how transaction capital comes out of all of this, given its deep links into the taxi industry. And that is an industry that now is here for keeps and grown more powerful after the rioting. But that's not what you've been looking at on the markets today. No, it isn't. And after the worst sell-off since October 28, 2020, the JSE All Share Index has rebounded slightly up at 65,300. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 14 rand 65 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 91 cents to the pound, and 17 rand and 23 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,823 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 28,000 rand. Brent crude is down at $67.80 a barrel, and Bitcoin is trading at 430,000 rand per coin. In the financial news today, Remgro, the investment company chaired and controlled by Johan Rupert, has poured another $3.7 billion into a telecommunications infrastructure company in a bid to take advantage of soaring demand for fiber. Remgro said it had followed all of its rights to buy shares in Community Investment Ventures Holding, a telecommunications company that counts Vimital and Dark Fiber Africa among its largest operating subsidiaries. ShopRite announced a surprisingly upbeat announcement in respect of the protests and civil unrest that took place last week. Despite around 10% of its stores in the group being subject to vandalization and looting, the food retailer still managed to achieve positive sales growth throughout the group for the week as grocers went stockpiling amid concerns of shortages for basic food goods. Commodity counters Anglo-American Platinum, BHP Billiton, and Kumba Iron Ore all released strong operational updates, with the miners taking advantage of the strong commodity prices across the board through 2021. All three miners were in the green on the JSE today. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Tuesday, July 20th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Global stocks shuttered yesterday as the coronavirus Delta variant continued its spread around the globe, and the online brokerage Robinhood is getting ready for its IPO. Plus, the U.S. administration recently issued a warning about doing business in Hong Kong, but the companies on the ground there aren't too happy about it. One of the U.S. National Security Advisor say that they weren't in the business of trying to make sure Goldman Sachs had better access to the China markets. We'll take a look at how U.S. companies in Hong Kong are dealing with political tensions. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need.
Global stock markets tumbled yesterday. Investors were unnerved by the rapidly spreading Delta coronavirus variant. The S&P 500 ended Monday more than 1.5% lower, and European bourses had their worst session of the year, with leading indices down more than 2%. Commodity prices fell, as did the yield on the 10-year Treasury. The FT's Mom to Badkar has more on investors' thinking. Vaccinations were sort of seen as this holy grail and that, you know, once folks started taking their vaccines, you know, we'd get a better handle of the pandemic. And I think what's concerning people is that, you know, if you look at the UK, the vaccine rates are pretty high, but the Delta variant's just rippling through the country. And so I think that's what's really concerning people is the variant going to be able to get around vaccines. And does that in turn then mean we're going to see these, you know, lockdowns reintroduced? There's also some concern that that growth at companies that have benefited from the end of lockdowns, that, you know, that growth could peak as inflation starts to heat up in in Europe and the U.S. That's the FT's U.S. breaking news editor, Mamta Badkar. One of the most anticipated stock listings of the year is about to land. Online brokerage Robinhood is aiming for a valuation of up to $35 billion in its IPO on the NASDAQ. It's expected to float sometime next week. The FT's Madison Derbyshire spoke to me about why there's all this excitement. It's been in the news. It's a brand that a tremendous number of Americans are using to trade stocks. But it's also come under fire from regulators. It's gotten in trouble for things like gamification The SEC is really not sure where it's going to come down on payment for order flow, which is how Robinhood makes most of its money. And if Robinhood loses the way that it makes most of its money, it suddenly becomes a lot less attractive for investors. So, Madison, what's interesting to me about the Robinhood IPO is that the company allocated more than 30 percent of its shares to retail traders, which, if I understand it correctly, is is pretty unusual. Generally, IPOs allocate very little shares to retail investors because it's more work for the company. It opens them up to slightly more volatile share prices after the IPO. It's easier for them to get all of their cash from big institutional fund managers or investment banks. But Robinhood is really trying to play into this idea that it is about democratizing access. And so for them, offering 35% of their shares to retail investors is them kind of putting their money where their mouth is and saying, we're going to let retail investors who wouldn't normally be able to buy at this IPO price in on this offering. Madison Derbyshire is our U.S. investment reporter. The Biden administration has been talking tough on China lately. Yesterday, it accused Beijing of masterminding cyber attacks. And last week, it issued an advisory warning to U.S. businesses of the risks of operating in Hong Kong. It cites, for example, a national security law, which would give Beijing access to data stored on servers there. But while U.S. business groups might not be happy about the crackdown in Hong Kong, they're also not happy about the Biden administration's warning. Our correspondent in Hong Kong, Primrose Reardon, joins me now to talk more about this. Hey, Primrose. Hello. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for coming back on the show. Um, Primrose, what was the purpose of the Biden administration's business advisory? I mean, U.S. officials say it's because there's been such a change in the regulatory and legal environment in Hong Kong, which is for a big trading partner of the U.S. They say this that the changes have been so big that they need to tell business and make sure business are aware of the risks that they face as in a general sense. And these officials are saying, no, it's not because they're trying to force business to leave the city or relocate their headquarters or anything. It's just to make sure that all business are aware of what's going on, like you would in a travel advisory. So Primrose, um, what are U.S. businesses worried about here? I guess the concerns among U.S. business about such an advisory is, first, it's sort of unusual. The U.S. doesn't offer these kind of business advisories very, very regularly or commonly elsewhere in the world. And so they're sort of worried that there could be any sort of backlash against U.S. business. The other thing that business is quite concerned about is that despite the fact that there is this clampdown going on in Hong Kong and there is you know, a lot of concerns over not just the national security law, 
But there's also another, a whole lot of other laws that are coming in, for example, an anti-doxing law, which could mean that executives of technology companies could be personally liable if they refuse to take down certain content. So there is, a, is sort of a number of the, in these sort of laws that are coming about that are changing the landscape in Hong Kong. But at the same time, a lot of these companies say, yes, these things are all happening, but it doesn't mean that Hong Kong is still exactly like mainland China or does it have the full risks and difficulties of doing business in mainland China. I'm curious, though, is, is there anything that the Biden administration can actually do? I think there's a question of whether or not the, the Biden administration really wants to Obviously, their China policy is still evolving. But in the early days, we had one of the U.S. National Security Advisor say that they weren't in the business of trying to make sure Goldman Sachs had better access to the China market. So it's a question of whether or not any of these sort of more strident policies by Western countries, including the U.S., are having any shift, um, any impact on China's policy towards Hong Kong. And I think the answer to that is that it's very difficult for the US to make moves that would shift China's policy towards Hong Kong without hurting US companies that are operating in Hong Kong and in China and without creating massive, serious eruptions in the global financial system. So it's a really difficult question for them going forward about what they will actually do. Primrose Reardon is the FT South China correspondent. She's based in Hong Kong. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. On a Tuesday, Stephen Nathan shares his insights, wisdom and perspectives with us. It's not difficult to see why our balance of payments in South Africa is so strong, why the RAND, in fact, has held up that well. Because when you've got companies like Kumba and Anglo Platinum making tens of billions of RANDs in their first half year figures as they've released, then you can see that they're exporting products which are bringing in hard currency into the country. And that is uh, very good for shareholders. But I guess once the commodity boom quietens down a bit as the world restocks after COVID-19, you cannot really expect that this will continue indefinitely. Yes, I think that, uh, as I think I said before, the mining sector has really been our get-out-of-jail card for South Africa mm-hmm. because, you know, we don't really want to think of what uh, what we would look like, what our balance of payments, what our... Uh, tax receipts uh, and what the currency would look like if it wasn't for you know this wonderful external factor of a, a commodity boom and us still benefiting from it. So it really you know it really talks to the fact that uh, we need to we need to inject a sense of urgency. Uh, and I think that's kind of you know what a lot of people are looking for to say uh, you know these 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 generic policies and these and these and these really shallow hollow statements. Uh, uh, should be a thing of the past. It's really time for action. So, what are we actually going to to do to make sure that uh, uh, that we can positively influence our own destiny, rather than maybe by luck we can say we were lucky or unlucky because you know we were lucky because of an a resource boom or we were unlucky because of that. You know, you can't rely on uh, on 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 luck. You actually have to be proactive. And I think I think I think that's what we're looking for. We're looking for. Uh, you know, government to take leadership and, and, and that has been lacking, but it's definitely something we need. And, and, and once again, as I say, it, it can't be government on its own, but I think it's got to be government led. It's got to be government initiated because I'm pretty certain that uh, the business sector and labor and communities uh, would come to the party, uh, you know, if, 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 if the call was there uh, and their participation was taken seriously and we could all agree on some, some common goals. And I think that's also a bit of a frustrating thing is, that, you know, uh, um, at the end of the day, while there's a lot of complexity underlying it, the issues are quite simple. People are hungry, uh, people are unemployed, people are disenfranchised, people have poor service delivery, people have lack of infrastructure in their communities. Um, you know, and and you can get people around a table, and I'm sure that uh, if you if you lock them up uh, for one week, they would come out, uh, even if they want di- different sides of the table or different stakeholders. Uh, you know, I'm sure they'd come out with some 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 policies where we could get. 
uh, agreement between those various stakeholders. And that's really what we need. We need tangible uh, plans for the short run, not these long run plans if we're going to create, you know, 50 million jobs or 5 million jobs in 30 years time. You know, that really means nothing. And that hasn't worked for us mm. to now. Eat an elephant one bite at a time. Don't try and swallow the whole thing. Transaction capital, uh, one of the new subsidiaries, We Buy Cars, is going to be buying a, a landmark here on the High Felt, uh, the, the Dome out at Northgate. Uh, it shows a, a, a high degree of ambition and perhaps confidence in the future from a company that's, of all the companies listed on the JSE, is closer to the taxi industry and, I guess, by definition, to what's really happening in South Africa. It's an interesting transaction, um, and uh, we buy cars uh, haven't yet said why they're doing it and what they intend doing it. But the bottom line is that they've bought an asset uh, that uh, that the current owners uh, could, no, could not make financially viable. So they've taken something with no value, and they've created value, and we know that uh, uh, you know a lot of lives and livelihoods were dependent on that. So the whole kind of entertainment industry and the ticketing industry around that. Uh, and hopefully we buy cars uh, are going to uh, take that asset and make it productive. We don't know exactly what they are going to be doing. But, you know, what it talks to is the, um, you know, where value is created in an economy. And and governments don't create value. Uh, you know, governments don't create uh, uh, economic value. They, they don't create taxpaying jobs. They might create jobs but they don't create tax-paying jobs because they use the tax receipts to fund their own employment. So, so governments don't create value, and that's why uh, you need a strong, uh, vibrant private sector. And even in, within the private sector, uh, the interesting point there is that big companies don't, don't create uh, jobs once they get to a certain size. So there's many studies that have shown, if you look at the Fortune 500 companies, over 10 years, those companies actually shed jobs. So, so you need entrepreneurs. And if you look at We Buy Cars, what a fantastic entrepreneurial story that I know you've covered well on business, but it's something like founded more or less at the same time as Capitec around about 2001. So they've been going for about 20 years. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I first heard about We Buy Cars and the size of the business, it was quite hard to comprehend that a business selling cars online uh, or on a direct basis could have, you know, could be, could be so big and successful. Um, but it just shows you what entrepreneurs can do and entrepreneurs that uh, that can create a business. Um, I think they employ over 1,000 people. It's a very, very sizable business and they've created employment. They've created, they pay a lot of tax to the government. So they would pay a fortune of tax uh, uh, within their business because that's always an interesting one is how much tax companies pay. It's not the 28% tax rate they pay, but it's all the employees and all the PAY they're playing on the employees and the VAT etc. Uh, so they're an enormous contributor to the economy. And that's what we need. Uh, we need more success stories. And, uh, you know, one of the things when I was thinking about We Buy Cars, you know, why are they su- very successful? Uh, and why are, you know, someone like Capitec very successful? And and I'm not saying this unequivocally, but it could be, a part of it could be that it's easier for those businesses to get started in the sense that if, you, uh, uh, if you're selling direct to the retail trade, then things like uh, employment equity and BEE and a lot of these onerous restrictions, I'm not saying that that we don't need to redistribute and have a more inclusive economy, but a lot of these success stories have been done where you don't need to have the, the, you know, the level of BEE and employment equity and government, uh, government sort of interference or licenses. We know the mining industry has been decimated because, you know, you need government permission and licenses to start a new mine, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, we need to look at these success, these success stories, appreciate them and say, well, how can we get more of them, uh, you know, to help, to help uplift the whole country? It's an interesting reversion of the dome to what it was built for in the first place, which was as a motor showroom. So it didn't work first time around. Let's hope that we buy cars is more successful. Stephen, just to close off with the, uh, the, the investment that we're seeing now from Remgro uh, into its Dark Fiber Africa and Vuma operation, the, uh, the broadband uh, business in South Africa, CIVH, and it's, it's a huge business. Uh, they tell us that there is a lot of interest from outsiders to invest in this business. And also we hear that had this business, uh, had COVID not come along, then they would have been quite keen to exit the business two years ago, whereas now no chance whatsoever with the acceleration in the use of broadband 
uh, as a consequence of what, what happened during the lockdowns. It's interesting how economies change and sometimes the acceleration of longer term trends make uh, what is today's maybe dubious uh, investment into tomorrow's superstar. Uh, yes, I think you know, there's there's probably a couple of angles to this. I mean, I think the one angle, and I don't know the sector really well, but you know, the one angle is really um, you know deregulation of industries, uh, is deregulation of telecommunication, taking the monopoly uh, uh, away from telecom uh, and deregulating you know the telecoms uh, uh, industry. Now, if that would not have happened. You know, then we wouldn't have had the explosion of the mobile uh, network operators. Uh, we wouldn't have had companies like Rain. We wouldn't have these companies, you know, these Remgro companies that you mentioned, Ingumatel, etc. Um, you know, and you know, this, that's why it's really important for government to facilitate this and to be forward-looking and proactive and to support uh, technological advances. That's a really important point because we wouldn't have all these fantastic companies. You know, had that uh, had that not uh, uh, happened. You know, then you've got to have. Uh, you know, entrepreneurs and you've got to have capital to support entrepreneurs. And in South Africa, we don't, you know, we're not like a Silicon Valley where you've got a great venture capital environment. And, you know, simply we don't have the market size to do that. Um, but what we do have is we have some great companies and Venfin uh, uh, within the Remgro group would be one of them, uh, you know, that, 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 that uh, are confident in the country, that understand the country uh, and that invest in the country. And, you know, we must never underestimate the value that uh, that that brings, because we wouldn't have uh, these kind of entrepreneurs if we didn't have the capital uh, to support them. Uh, and then the third point, as you say, is the you know COVID just accelerating the digital transformation. I think you know a lot of people have spoken about it's brought things for ten years. Uh, you know uh, what we what what we couldn't have achieved in ten years, we achieved in one year out of uh, out of out of necessity. Um, but, uh, you know, it comes back to the point that if you didn't have that technology in place and you didn't have the, the enabling environment, then you wouldn't be able to benefit from technology. You wouldn't be able to switch, uh, you know, to Zoom and work from home and eating from home and ordering from home and living from home. Uh, so, you know, that's a great example of, uh, uh, I guess, of government and the private sector working together in good times and taking advantage of things like uh, COVID, accelerating these businesses. I mean, I was listening to... Uh, something, a podcast on the food delivery business in the U.S. Uh, with Grubhub and Uber Eats. And, you know, it's, 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 it's fascinating. And the fascinating thing is that before COVID, uh, you know, a lot of those businesses were, were, were probably going to close down because the business model, it was so tough to make it, uh, to make it work. They were really getting to the edge of their runway and their private equity and venture capital investors uh, got very tired of just putting more money in. Uh, and then COVID came and, you know, their businesses increased by 50 to 100 percent. And that also gave them a lifeline. So there certainly are some ben businesses that have been beneficiaries of COVID. Well, including Zoom, which has just done a huge acquisition in the U.S. of a, of a call center, software call center business for 17 billion. I looked back on that one, Stephen. Pre-COVID, their market cap of, of Zoom was around that level. Now the, the deal is one-sixth of their market cap. So it just shows you how there have been winners and losers uh, from this pandemic. No, it's unbelievable. It really, it really is. As you say, you know, uh, Zoom, Zoom would be one. And there's, you know, there's so many stories within that because uh, uh, very few of us had actually heard of Zoom, maybe where we were going back 18, 18 months ago. Uh, you know, we'd kind of heard of Skype. And it's amazing how Zoom uh, managed to leapfrog Leak, leapfrog Skype, uh, you know, Skype that was bought by uh, Microsoft. It was quite a while ago. I think they paid something like six or seven billion dollars at the time, uh, you know, but they never, they weren't able to monetize that. But I think they have used a lot of that technology for teams. So they've kind of taken it from the retail environment into the business environment, um, you know, but Zoom has done uh, 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 an incredible job. I mean, one of the, one of, the, I guess, the good and the bad things about these companies uh like a Zoom, and you can even say the same of a Facebook. And uh, in fact, uh, a lot of the technology companies is they start off really small. They start off wanting to do good things, and then when they get traction and they become larger companies, and they start buying all their competitors for better and 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 worse. I guess that's just the uh, uh, the business cycle. But the good thing they have on their side is that the market is prepared to uh, give them capital at uh, at very attractive rates, and then they can use that capital and reinvest them in other you know, areas to grow, to grow their business, hopefully provide better services, but also I think as a shareholder to kind of build the moats uh, and protect, 
protect their core businesses. Well, there's been a whole lot uh, spoken about going on and uh, what happened in South Africa over the past week. What's bothering me is that many of the people who are making assumptions and opinions and telling the rest of us what's going on are actually sitting behind keyboards far away from the action. Well, that's not the case with James Martin, who is in Peter Maritzburg. He is the head of department for economic development at the Mgonglovo uh, district, which is uh, Mgonglovo, the place of elephants. That's uh, Sleepy Hollow, isn't it, James? Correct, yeah? yes, yeah. What is the job that you do uh, within the organization? The position I hold is looking at the economy of the KZN Midlands um, and combining it with the way we do our town planning. So it's to stimulate investment, to make sure we retain whatever enterprises we have, and to plan our towns and cities in and around the Midlands in a way that's, that uh, supports investment and economic activity. It seems all theoretical about what happened in the past week. I mean, you're looking to grow and to plan things, and my goodness, it's like a hurricane hit you. It's a bitter pill to swallow. It's, it, during those days, we woke up thinking, hoping it was a dream, a dream, and it wasn't. It was reality. We're busy picking up the pieces now, and uh, yes, I, I'd like to say that there's, there's a buzz around at the moment. I think people are just edging to get back and to get cracking and get get start earning their salaries and, and start trading again. But it's yeah. I spoke with, with Melanie Vaness, who you obviously know very well from yeah. the Maritzburg Chamber, yeah. uh, and she was very shell-shocked in the middle of the, all the chaos. Uh, how much damage was done to the city and, and the surrounding district? Well, I've, we do have the statistics. I don't have them at my fingertips, but I can say that uh, each town except Camperdown in this district was damaged severely. Richmond was almost flattened. Uh, the area to the east of Peter Maritzburg, the smaller towns there, they were almost, uh, the businesses were almost flattened. Um, in Howick, uh, it's a town most people may have heard of. Uh, we're estimating around 40 businesses have been uh, looted. Some have been burnt. Uh, Moy River on the on the freeway, obviously a number of of, of businesses there have also so, and then in Peter Maritzburg itself, uh, um, a couple of major shopping centres, especially in the in the in the black townships, uh, they've been destroyed, um, and burnt to the ground, uh, with I think only four shopping centres still standing out of I estimate probably double that number. So. The centre of town itself, uh, I went through on the day uh, during the days uh, of the of the this treachery, and um, it it was a it was a war zone. You, your car couldn't drive through the streets because of of the of the rubbish and the the debris on the roads, and people were loitering, sc scavenging through whatever was left. It really was a, a war zone at the time. I'm happy to say today, driving through it, it's a lot. It's obviously been cleaned up, and it's safe, and there's police presence. And there is a sense of calm that's returned, but you can't help noticing the the destruction and and the looted. I mean, massive uh, furniture shops that are now just uh, they've been burnt. They, there's no other way to describe it. They're black shells of of nothing. So, yeah, it's hit. I think it's hit hit everybody in the solar plexus, uh, especially from a business point of view. Some of them feel they can bounce back. Some of them feel that it's a bridge too far now to come back. James, when I spoke with Melanie Vaness, she was calling for a state of emergency. She said that many of the businesses in Peter Maritzburg had been flattened and that in the absence of having the army uh, in, in situ, uh, the rest of them were going to go as well. Uh, I suppose the big question is the, the absence of the security forces for such a long time in, in such a, uh, a heavily attacked area. Um. It's hard to read. It's hard to read what's on the street. My, my, my sense being on the ground is inclining towards a, sta a stable uh, future, certainly for the short to medium term. I'd like to say that the taxi industry have played a huge role in bringing calm to our waters um, and will continue to do so. I think without their assurance uh, in bringing the stability at a provincial level, uh, I wouldn't be speaking as confidently as I am. Also, I think that people have realized how this has damaged uh, people's livelihoods going forward. I think that there's a sense of calm that has returned. Like I said in the beginning, it, 
looting a shop, I, we've all realized how easy it is. We all thought it was a, it was something that could never be done. But just looking at how easy it was to walk in and carry out a big screen and load it up into your Mercedes, it, it, it's almost it's it's almost miraculous that you can you can shop so easily. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. driving through town this morning, I went into the office. People are trading. People are walking on the streets. Um, I didn't see a police person. I didn't see an SANDF person. People were going about their business. And uh, I can say, I have permission to say on behalf of the taxi industry, although I'm not their spokesperson, that uh, they are manning the situation very, very carefully. And they have shown real solidarity towards stabilizing. Um, They've had had meetings in the outlying towns. They've been giving businesses assurance in and around this city to the outlying towns, through the associations, through the, the structures, to say that, that this, this will not happen again under their watch. Uh, and they are a force to be reckoned with. I mean, they, they, they are a very, very powerful and very structured army of highly intelligent and decent guys who have taken the law, not the law into their hands, but they have put a firm grip on people's movements and, and, and what's happening, especially in the townships from where a lot of these people have been coming. Mm. Getting back to the Taxi Association, again, uh, when Jason McCormick was telling us there was a two-hour firefight between uh, that advanced guard and uh, and his security guards. His guys were only allowed to shoot a birdshot and, and rubber bullets, law-abiding. Uh, those who were attacking them were with R1s and R4s. And he said that was turned around by the taxi association arriving there and just firing back with live ammunition. So these guys are <laughs> clearly well armed and don't and have their own their, their own approach to these things. But why would the taxi association have gotten involved in in the first place in restoring calm? Well, first of all, the taxi industry is in an interesting place in its own trajectory. It's wanting to take center stage in the uh, in the commercial first first world platform. They do ninety odd billion a year turnover. They, people say they don't pay taxes, but if you look at the the tax they pay on on forty billion rands worth of fuel, the tax they pay in VAT on uh, on the whatever fifteen billion they spend on tires, they're a massive contributor not only uh, in the taxes and the revenues that they pay, but in terms of getting us us all, all our staff and everybody to work. So they are they are underway uh, through Santaco, the National Association, and Taxi Choice, the commercial arm, to become a major force. They've acquired shares in uh, various financial institutions. They've acquired shares in Toyota dealerships. So they are wanting to be seen as a a central force in the economy. Um, if you'd spoken to the taxi industry ten years ago, a lot of them were the older guys who started out with Valiance. They didn't have education. The taxis that those valiants that they started out with paid for education. The kids coming through now uh, in their thirties and forties have been to varsity. They've got degrees. They're now running dad's taxis. Uh, there's a new layer of uh, of skills coming through uh, across the South African taxi landscape. So th- I think the the level of um, business acumen um, is rising, and with it comes that level of I suppose. Uh, responsibility in in this in this commercial environment. So I think that's the first point: is that they've realised that they that this image of of uh, a thug taxi violence um, doesn't suit them. It doesn't suit. It doesn't encourage passengers, uh, and it doesn't endear them on the roads. So there is that that ongoing drive. And I was with Taxi Choice on their national executive five years ago. We sort of started that back then, and 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 it's an ongoing process. Um, so that's the first thing is they want to be seen as integral to our economy uh, as a force to be reckoned with. But also, of course, uh, most of their vehicles are, are bonded, uh, are, are funded through banks. Um, and for every day that a taxi is not on the road, he's got to he's got to make that day back to pay his uh, his bond, his his vehicle finance. So it was imperative for them and their survival. You know, COVID took their guts out. Uh, they're busy recovering from that, although the banks were quite kind and charging interest and reduced rates and not repossessing when they may have done so. So there's been a lot of um, support from the commercial side in supporting the taxi industry. But I think a knock like this in the province would would have would have shown their underbellies. They'd be lying on their backs now if if it had gone on for much longer. So I think for them it was a um, a survival kick in as well to make sure that the wheels keep turning and that the customers are still um, you know paying for their taxi fare, coming into town, paying the driver. So I suppose it's two-pronged. 
they want the economy. They want to be part of the economy, but they also need to keep their fleet moving. This is Linda von Tilburg for Biz News. As South Africa comes to terms with the widespread looting of the past week, there are many explanations given for why this has happened and who is behind it, with fingers pointed in many directions. Some of them are Zulu or ethnic mobilization and an attempted insurrection. Political analyst Muleti Mbeki rejects these explanations and he says they are ghosts that the ANC and now President Cyril Ramaphosa pull out when the organization is in trouble. Mbeki takes a look at where this would lead our well-paid civil service, which surprised the Germans, the future of the ANC, and he gives us a tiny glimpse in what he discusses with his brother, former President Thabo Mbeki. Well, I was the first person to attack Cyril for saying this ethnic mobilization. There's no such a thing. But it was deliberate because he has since withdrawn it. I don't know if you are aware of it. Yes, I saw that. Uh, In my view, Cyril was targeting the whites, uh, the white prejudices, let me say. He wanted to tell the whites that they are these Zulu bloodthirsty savages but he's going to deal with them using the army and the police. So that was his strategy for allaying the white fears. And of course, the whites believe that they are Zulu bloodthirsty savages who have to be dealt with with the army. So that was the intention. He knows there were no such ethnic mobilizations. Cyril knows how to manipulate the white population. He plays on their prejudices. He manipulates the black population as well. He was caught on camera a couple of years ago. He was on a campaign in Polokwane, and this old lady in the in the township said to him that she's not going to vote for the ANC anymore uh, for service delivery reasons. Now, Cyril thought the camera was far away and wouldn't hear his reply. So he told her, you know, if you don't vote for the ANC, the Boers will come back and take the land back. So, you know, he's a real racial opportunist who manipulates both the whites by playing on their fears and prejudices and the blacks by playing on their fears and their prejudices. By the time he withdrew his ethnic mobilization, the damage had been done. The whites had believed him. So he didn't need to continue with it. I don't think he expected people like me to raise a lot of noise about it. So what do you say to people who say, but the sparks seem to have come from Zuma supporters and that some of these looting was only around in areas where there's a big population of Zulus, like in KwaZulu-Natal and certain areas of Gauteng? The spark came from where Jacob Zuma lives. Whether it's Zulu or not Zulu, it came from where he lives, which is his own province. That doesn't make ethnic mobilization. For him to get support from his province doesn't add up to ethnic mobilization, or it doesn't even add up to Zulu support. So what do you say to people who then say, yeah, but then why was there no looting in the Western Cape or areas of Limpopo? Does that make it ethnic mobilization? That's the question. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't constitute ethnic mobilization. It does not make it Zulu support. Do you believe in a third force or the theory of attempted insurrection? Well, you know, if you remember, these are the ghosts that the ANC leadership pulls out whenever it has problems. In the past, there was a third force which was one of the ghosts that the ANC used to explain a whole lot of things, which was really directed at the Afrikaners. It was a code word for uh, what the ANC perceived as Afrikaner rejectionists, and it called them the third force. These are code words, but did the Afrikaner people object to democracy? Of course not. Most of them supported the Czech in introducing the changes that he introduced. Of course, there were those who disagreed, but that was their right. Well, fingers are being pointed at a dozen close associates of former President Jacob Zuma. Is this a smokescreen, or what do you think is just scapegoating? Is there really something like that? 
number one on the list, Tulani Lamini, the guy who was ambassador to Japan, has already said he's actually working with the government. So he doesn't know where his name comes from, that he's top of the list of these 12 insurrectionist organizers. But he handed himself over. No, he didn't. He went to complain. I don't think he has been arrested. What is very clear is that the strategy of the government is to tell the population that this is a conspiracy. It is not because of poverty. This is an old trick that the National Party used to use. The National Party used to say, our blacks are happy. It is the communists who are creating trouble. The ANC is saying, our blacks are happy. It is either the Zulus or then they realize that that's not quite kosher, the Zulu thing. Uh, Then they say, oh, it's insurrectionist. So what is the real reason for, well, first of all, the spark and then the big fire? Zuma has support amongst the poor. We have always known this. Everybody has known it, except his enemies within the ANC. When Zuma walked into a stadium, there were a huge welcome uproar for him. And then he would start singing and dancing and, and all sorts of... And the poor who go to these rallies to get free food parcels and, and free T-shirts, will be singing and dancing with him. So they see him, the poor, see him as one of them. He has no education. He doesn't come from the elite like the Eastern Cape, like my brother and Mandela. And he's not a son of a policeman like Cyril Ramaphosa. He is just an ordinary peasant who was a migrant worker. So, So that's why they identify with him. So there was bound to be a response when he got arrested. But then it snowballed. Well, they have nothing to lose and a lot to gain by raiding a shopping mall. What is your take on the role of the taxi associations and the taxi bosses? Because I've just spoken to a nephew who lives in Richards Bay, and he said that the taxi association came to help them. And at the moment, the taxi association is going around in Pangani, taking stuff that's stolen and taking it to the local police. There are so many players in South Africa who have so many different motives. What is their motive? I don't know what the taxi owner's motive is, but but there are many people who have many motives. If you have to summarize why this happened and why it spread, what would you say? Linda, I wrote an article in February 2011 saying that there is going to be an explosion in South Africa within the coming 10 years. It's predictable. There's nothing mysterious about it. When you have levels of youth unemployment of 50% plus, people between the ages of 15 and 24, when you have levels of unemployment of 30 to to 40, when you have levels of poverty of 50% of your population, you know this is a powder keg that's going to explode. So there was absolutely nothing unpredictable about the explosion that that happened during the last week. It was totally predictable. What was not predictable was a spark which would set it off. But it could be any spark. It was the arrest of Jacob Zuma. But it could have been fans fighting outside a football match. It's not the first time, by the way, these explosions have happened. When the National Party introduced the, the tricameral parliament, there was a huge explosion. And P.W. Porter was shocked and eventually had to introduce the state of emergency. He was surprised there was a spark, but everybody could have told him there would be. So where does this leave the ANC and President Ramaphosa after this? Ramaphosa, remember, he's part of the ANC. The ANC is an institution. People keep thinking Ramaphosa owns the ANC. The ANC is not a private property of Ramaphosa. The ANC is a 110-year-old institution which has policies, which has practices, and its policies have failed, and Cyril Ramaphosa cannot change ANC policies. So many people keep thinking, oh, Ramaphosa is going to save South Africa, Ramaphosa cannot save South Africa. 
And anyway, the policies that are being pursued by the ANC, which is to advance the interests of the black middle class, those are not Ramaphosa policies, those are ANC policies. Black economic empowerment, which is one of the major drivers of corruption, it is also the major drivers of inequality amongst blacks in South Africa. It's not Ramaphosa's policy. It's an ANC policy, and Ramaphosa cannot change it. And people keep thinking Ramaphosa has a magic wand which will solve the world's problems. Mas van der Merlin, the founder and chief executive of SEME, you guys don't seem to have a PR department or a publicity machine or anything. I've got to find out what you're doing from... Uh, social media from uh, from Facebook. Clive Eckstein, my uh, my colleague and friend, said to me, "You got to see what Miles is up to. He's he's flying in bread to Durban in his own planes at his own cost, and he's even driving the uh, equipment that parks the planes." Come on, Miles, what's <laughs> what's going on here? Firstly, Alec, thanks for being having me on the show again. Always great to see you. Um, yeah, in times like this, big PR departments um, are luxury you can't afford, I guess. Um, but yes, uh, these things also crop up so quickly, one has to react fast and help where help is needed. Um, we found in the past um, these uh, these times resolve themselves quite quickly, so the, the applicability um, of air transport is relatively short. First days when the greatest shortage um, exists is when we're needed. And then once the road is open and large trucks go through, obviously they, um, they have the volumes that are required. So, um, so what gave you the idea, though, to do this? Honestly, um, because we've done a few things like this before, um, it all found us. You know, we've uh, worked with the knives and the fires and during the repats uh, last year and a few other things we've done. So um, the people that uh, work with these programs all had our number and uh, phoned us and said, help, um, there's a big need at the moment. Can you assist? And we said yes. Take us through the practicalities of of getting your planes loaded with bread for Durban? So simply put, we just provided an air link. Um, you know, we're running uh, f- flights from Joburg into Durban anyway to, to fly people out of Durban. A lot of people that wanted uh, to leave very badly. Um, there weren't that many people wanting to go to Durban at the time, obviously. So we had a lot of spare capacity. Um, so we uh, used that space to, to fly food and other essentials and medicine, that kind of thing. Where did they fly to? Because you're not allowed to come to Gauteng, for instance. Uh, our borders are supposed to be closed um, up here. Yeah, look, I suppose when you live in a war zone, it's, uh, you know, people had the required documentation. Um, but uh, all our flights were to Kauteng. Um I know uh, Safe did have flights directly to Cape Town as well, but we didn't operate the Cape Town leg. We just operated Kauteng. A lot of people continued with us on, on other legs. Um, in fact, some to Cape Town, some to George, some other places. But uh, they did want to get out of Durban in quite a hurry. Did you change your routes at all? Yeah, look, we, we um, have operated in some hot spots. So, um, you know, small arms can't get very high and airplanes climb quite fast. It's, it's only really in the location of the airport that there's any um, potential threat. And, and that was um, a safe zone, in, 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 certainly into King Shark. All of our stuff was into King Shark. And a lot of the general aviation guys went into Virginia, have no knowledge of what happened there. Um, but no, it's not really a threat to us in, in this kind of thing. So how much food did you take to Durban? I think it must have been about 25 tonnes in the end. Um, it uh, spiked very quickly. Thursday was, was sort of the, the, the peak of the panic. Um, so the conversations probably started Tuesday afternoon. A lot of stuff started arriving Wednesday. Thursday, it was just crazy. There's a queue of cars literally down the road. Um, Friday, it started tapering off. And by Saturday, um, the roads were open and uh, people were... Some of them came to fetch some stuff to put on a truck because uh, we were just a bit behind. So how come you ended up driving one of those vehicles to park the aeroplane? Uh, with, with it looked <laughs> like it was it your son who was, uh, who was sitting on your lap? Yeah, I've got a five-year-old little guy, and he just um, loves pushing aeroplanes around. So um, it's kind of our, uh, our thing that we do together. So, uh, yeah, he loves sitting on the bonnet of the aeroplane tug and and as we push them around the, the, the apron, so it's a fairly common thing. It happens most days. I somehow can't imagine too many chief executives of airlines doing a, doing a similar thing. But, Miles, you did mention earlier you've seen, uh, you've done service in a lot of hotspots. Uh, you've flown in, flown out. 
what you saw in our country last week, uh, what does it remind you of, if any, anything else? Well, no, Durban got quite bad. Um, obviously, the you know the bit we saw during the the service was was very benign. We just saw um, King Shark Airport, which was very controlled. But certainly, the the, the pictures you see of um, some of the streets with stuff strewn down it and things on fire, um, that's right up there. It, uh, it's a very serious situation. How long? How long could you have continued to fly in food and supplies to KZN if if required? Let's just say that the uh, the looting hadn't ended as it appeared to have done over the weekend, but it continued uh, as some people feared uh, it would do on Monday. There was lots on social media suggesting that Monday was going to be even worse um, and and through yeah. this week. Uh, h- how long would it have been possible to keep the province supplied? Well, uh, there's no limit to how long you can do it for, really. Um, Durban's a big city, so um, you can't feed it and keep it full of medicine by a small aeroplane, by by 70-80 aeroplane. So, you know, practically we're just scratching the surface of a very, very large need. See that size needs supply chains and, and, you know, we're just helping the most desperate of the most desperate um, for a few days. What was the most desperate uh, a product that was required? The, the bulk of the requests were for medicine items, so um, chronic medication, you know, insulin, that kind of stuff, um, and, and baby care products, nappies, um, formula. We've seen that before in, in, in other difficult times where uh, baby products run short quite quite quickly. And then generally it was um, staples. We worked with um, Asherful, the, the um, aid organisation, and they were very organized. It's actually a very impressive organization. They brought um, little hampers that were pre-packed with essentials that could go directly to um, families and, and, and support them. Um, they contained essentials such as, uh, you know, oil, meal, uh, flour, that kind of stuff that you could um, uh, bake bread with. And then, obviously, we, we flew a lot of bread in there as well. Bread's kind of nice to fly because it's light and <laughs> you're playing just like light items. And when you landed on the other side, who distributed the products? Asheville has got a good footprint there, so that was very handy because what we've seen in these situations is controlling it um, in, a, in a chaotic area can be quite difficult and you want to make sure it ends up in the right hands. And people that donate, and so many people were so willing to donate, um, they want to know that um, their goodwill goes to the people that need it, not the people that are, are, are doing the stuff they disagree with. So having Asheville on, on board really helped because they could collect it from the cargo terminal and take it to their distribution centres. Did you say Asheville? Ashraful, A S H R A F U L. Where are they it's from? A, it's, it's, I'm not exactly sure. It's a South African based thing. It's very similar, it seems, to Gift of the Givers. Um, I'm no expert on, on um, NGOs, but um, it seems to be very much in the ilk of, of Gift of the Givers. It's interesting that they, they are so low profile and yet doing such amazing work. I, I, hasn't that been the story of the past week, though, that uh, anonymous South Africans, anonymous organizations, yourself, uh, doing things that no one really sought recognition for gives you restores your faith in humanity. I mean, the number of people that just would do just wanted to assist in any small way they could, um, and yes, as you say, completely anonymously, they just want to help because they can see that there's a need. It's it's a wonderful thing to be part of. Uh, is it true that you didn't charge for the flats? Um, we didn't charge for f- flying essentials down for uh, aid down. Um, so the passenger flights were, were, were paid, but the, um, the, the, the food aid was, was for free. So on the one hand, you were bringing a lot of people back from Durban and yeah. you could then fill your planes and send them down to Durban and uh, without any charge. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, the, most flights literally didn't have a single passenger. There was nobody interested in going to Durban at that stage. <laughs> now, we often see directional traffic um, seasonally in particular, but uh, this was pretty extreme for, uh, for for a place like Durban where you normally get fairly balanced traffic to have it. So single directional is quite odd. And the people who were coming out, mainly women and children? No, scratching up everybody. Um, a lot of young families were really nervous. Um, obviously, if you have young kids, your mobility decreased. So they, they do tend to um, get nervous faster. So we did see a lot of those, but um, all sorts were, 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 were looking to, to, to leave. You know, a lot of people are there were caught because it exploded so quickly. Um, they were caught just unaware. So, you know, it's not their hometown even. People were visiting the city and um, they then found themselves in the thick of it um, and, and wanted to leave to 
to go home as such. And then obviously some residents as well um, wanted to leave town for the time of the difficulty. Well, that was the Biz News Power Hour. We'll be back again tomorrow, same time, same place. Until then, from the team, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.